Bibles, the book of Revelation, chapter 20. We'll be reading the entirety of this chapter as it references our passage in 1 Corinthians, Revelation chapter 20. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection." Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We want to uh, continue our study this morning on the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the focus or the theme that we picked up last week that throughout this chapter is the contrast that we must choose We must choose one or the other. Either Christ provides the most powerful, effectual work known to man by the means of His resurrection from the dead, or Christianity is the most foolish, empty, and worthless thing to believe. One or the other. There's no middle ground here. And Paul recognizes that. We think that there's lots of middle ground there that people can move in where they can say pleasant things about Christianity and not 
believe it. Not get too radical about it. That somehow that is an appropriate place to be, that we can give lip service to it, and yet deny it, and think that somehow that's all right. Rather, Paul is very clearly setting up two statements. Either it is the power of God to salvation, or it is completely worthless. And to believe in it is the epitome of foolishness. Much like other cardinal doctrines, for example, the virgin birth for the deity of Christ, for other examples, the resurrection stands. And Christianity itself stands or falls upon its truth. It's historical truth, but also... It's spiritual truth. That it is in its working not only accomplish something for Christ, which he didn't need, but rather that it accomplished wondrous things for men. And we desperately needed it. So as we again look into the passage before us and we remind it of this contrast It's one way or the other. There is no middle ground. Either today, the work of Christ is doing nothing for you because you do not believe it. Or we stand as the most blessed of people with a future intact regardless of the occurrences, the oppositions, the struggles to come. So we continue our study. Let's go, Lord, in prayer as we pick up in verse 12 today. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us. And we pray that your spirit might have control at this time. Not only in what is said, and certainly um, that is a concern, that what is communicated is truth and that is derived from your word and and, uh, directed by your spirit but also, Lord, what is received. That we might recognize with a discerning mind your truth. We might receive it with a willing heart to bring it into our very lives and let it penetrate us. Lord, that we might humble ourselves before you and seek your face today. We might do more than just claim with our mouths the power of the resurrection. It might do so also with our heart and soul and strength. And Lord, again, we need your help in all of this. We thank you that you have said that you are near at hand, that you are willing to give wisdom to those that ask of you. And so Lord, we ask that your spirit might work in our midst today, knowing that genuine wisdom is to trust in you and to walk according to your ways. We thank you again for this time we spend your word in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul has given us some of the historical proof or evidence of a resurrection in his uh, defense of it before the Corinthians. Uh, the likelihood is, is we're going to see 
in the passages to come is that there wasn't necessarily a head-on assault on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but rather its application to the church, and we're going to see that extensively in verse 12 and following, um, that somehow Christ could be risen from the dead, but not us. Um, that it's uh, something that's reserved for him. Um, but Paul begins by really uh, addressing any attack that might have been upon the resurrection of Christ himself. Did it really occur? Um, was this an invention of the church or was this something that there was ample evidence to point to? And Paul has done his presentation of the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By eyewitness accounts, both of his followers and of his enemies, himself being of the latter group, not the former group, he was one of the enemies of Christ. We find the historical narrative is genuine and is not invented by these fishermen. Um, it is trustworthy. And it is the message that the Corinthians had originally received. It is what has been consistently preached by all without wavering. All of those who witnessed of it. None fell away from that testimony not a one, though we have a number well over 500 of people who were witnessing of it. None recanted that witness. We come now to verse 12 and we begin to move from the historical support for the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the a more logical approach, a little more reasoning that Paul's going to introduce here to to address this whole idea that somehow um, it could happen to Christ and not to us if it happened to Christ at all. And none of us were there in this room. None of the Corinthians were there um, in that city on that day. Uh, and so they brought it into question, into doubt. And so we begin to push into verse 12 again to establish, is Christianity... what it claims, or is it worthless? Paul says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, which he has just demonstrated in verses 1 through 11, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so he is going to take it from the general statement that there is no resurrection of the dead. That's a bunch of foolishness. Um, doesn't happen, doesn't, is going to occur. And so they have made this generalized statement, there is no resurrection of the dead. If that is a true statement, then Christ himself could not have been risen from the dead. Um, because if that general statement is correct in its, in its breadth, then also the specific example of Jesus Christ must fall under it. And we could conclude that Christ himself didn't raise from the dead if we're going to make the general statement that there is no such thing as people being raised from the dead. Once we take that statement that there is no resurrection of the dead, we need to recognize its consequences. And Paul works through it with the Corinthians that if the resurrection of the dead is a foolish thing, then Christ himself is not risen. Without a risen Christ... There is nothing to preach. 
Because just presenting some other guy's teaching that might be a nice set of philosophies to follow is not what Christianity is all about and it has no genuine effectualness for you. And it's worrisome to me when I see many trying to introduce Christian teachings into society in certain areas thinking that they're going to benefit society uh, when they extract from that same message the gospel of the power of forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, of the power of the resurrection. And so we're going to go into our society, and it all sounds very well and good. Um, I recall um, Gary Smallman uh, some years ago putting out a video series uh, trying to salvage marriages. we got to stop this just dissolution of marriage in our society. We, we have to help our society. And here he is presenting this video series, and... Um, was not presented as a Christian thing, um, but in and through it was a lot of Christian principles. And what he had done is he had gone to God's Word, taken all the principles of God's Word, put it into a video series, but didn't recognize that he had extracted it from God's Word. And when you extract something from God's Word as simply a philosophy or principles to be taught without that power, you are doing a disservice to those that you are talking to. Frankly, I don't want people to have good marriages if they don't have Christ in that marriage. I don't want them to be happy and fulfilled lives if they don't have Christ in their life. Because that is the power of God. We do not just derive good principles from this good book and then we go out and live according to them and have fulfillment. Um, no. <laughs> Without the power of the resurrection at work in us, everything else in this book is meaningless. It is worthless. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then we have no Savior because Christ Himself isn't risen and an unrisen Savior simply puts Him on a shelf with all the other philosophical teachers, whether you call them religious or political, put them on the shelf with all the rest and just take your pick and choosing. You're still lost in your sin. You don't have anything to cling to. There is no hope. Um, take your pick or pick none of them and just pick your own philosophy of life and live it because eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're dead. Why follow any other man's philosophy, right? If Christ isn't risen from the dead, if He is simply another Buddha, if he's just another guru, if he's just a, another prophet, then put him on the shelf. Because that's all he is. And living by his teachings isn't going to help you. Because there's no hope there apart from the resurrection. And so Paul recognizes this. He says, listen, without a risen Christ... We have no hope. We have no forgiveness of sins. We have nothing. We have To believe in Christianity is kind of empty. Uh, which is how I feel about the people that are believing in all these other isms that are out there, all these other religions, um, that it's just emptiness. And, and the things that it drives people to do, to blow themselves up and to, and to um, do injury to their own bodies, to, to suffer some 
incredible things and to engage in some spectacular activities all in the name of some guy's teaching who's dead and gone. It's phenomenal to think about. I know Karl Marx said that considered religion the opiate of the people, that it put people to sleep, but he was 180 degrees wrong. It was. You go through history and you see what people have done in the name of their religious beliefs, what they are doing today in the name of their religious beliefs, and religion has not dulled people into sleepless sleepfulness or that you can but rather it's more like cocaine. It's a stimulant. It drives them to all this stuff and you sit back and look at it and you say, Why? Why? If it's just another guy's philosophy and he died and ran his course and he had his ideas, well, why? There's something unique in Christianity. This claim to have victory over sin, victory over death through a Savior, Jesus Christ, the Savior, who is God incarnate, This makes preaching purposeful. This makes your faith worthwhile. Is that we serve a risen Savior. Paul, in verse 15, says, you know, we've been lying to you all along. You know, you claim that you're a Peter, you're a Paul, you're of Apollos, you're of Jesus. But if there's no resurrection, then all of us are liars. And why are you following anything we teach when the, one of the fundamentals of our teaching, of our doctrine, is the resurrection? And so Paul works his way through this in their thinking and say, you must come out of this fog that you have allowed some to creep into your midst who generate this doubt over the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you not see the horrific results of doing so. In the end, you have no salvation, you have no forgiveness of sins, you have no purpose, really, in following the teachings of Christ. Um, you have nothing to preach. You have nothing to live. Your belief is as empty as those people walk into the temples of Apollo, the temples of, of uh, Hera, of Zeus, I guess that's Greek, of... Uh, all, all those false gods of the Greeks and Romans, your faith is as empty and as meaningless as that. What is unique and necessary if we have something worthwhile, worth the suffering that Paul's going to talk about down the road, worth living for, worth keeping our eyes upon, that we might run this race looking for a prize. It is the resurrection. Not only of Christ's resurrection, but of our own. And so Paul very clearly describes throughout these verses the necessity 
not only of Christ being raised, but also of the general principle that the dead do rise. And we're not just talking about the Christian dead rising. Um, and that's very important for us to realize that the Bible has consistently taught that all men will rise from the dead. There will be various resurrections at the end. And we read earlier this morning um, the passage out of Revelation. Uh, and the reason being, because I want you to see this whole idea of this progressiveness of the resurrection, that death and Hades, hell and Hades will be emptied. They will give up their dead. That all the dead, small and great, will stand before God. Some to go into everlasting judgment into the lake of fire that was made for Satan and his followers among the, among the angelic, the demons, and others into life eternal. And so there is a resurrection not just for those who believe, but for all men. And so the principle that Paul is declaring here is that once you remove this idea that there is something more to man than just an animalistic life in the present, once we take away that immaterial, once we take away that future, then go out there and live like an animal because there's nothing else. Just feed your body and give it whatever it desires. Restrain yourself not at all. Just go. There's nothing to hold you back. But the knowledge of a resurrection and this knowledge that there is something more to man than just the material, that there's something more to us, something more substantial, and something even more eternal to us, than these bodies, has permeated all society. It is found in religion after religion, whether they want to ascend to it through some activity of their own, whether they want to recognize it, we find it consistently among men, the recognition that there is more to reality than simply the physical world. And this is where faith becomes meaningful. Is that there is a future for man. And what you believe in these days will affect that future. And God recognizes this and He intervenes on the course of man and says, I'll provide you a means towards a future different than you deserve. Your deserved future is one of death and destruction. The second death that we read about there in Revelation. That is the future you are deserving. And I'm willing to intervene. I'm willing to come in and to offer this exit ramp from that determined future that you have before you, and now you have an option. You have an opportunity to follow this one Jesus and He has paved the way by His own resurrection that we might receive the forgiveness of sins. 
And the power of the resurrection is that His sacrifice was accepted before God. And as such, by the, by the means of the resurrection, is a demonstration that our sin can be removed from us. And I know we go back to the cross and back to the cross and we have the songs and, the, and there is indication in God's Word. We, we do reference the sacrifice, the shedding of blood for the removal of sins. But the acceptability of that sacrifice is made evident through the resurrection. And so, even if everything else had been true right up to the point of the resurrection and Christ has shed His blood, our sins would not have been forgiven. For the resurrection is His victory over sin and its consequence, death. You can't have the capacity to forgive sin without the corollary capacity of removing death. Because they are two sides of the same coin. They are intertwined into one another. And so when the Bible declares, and we're going to read it later on, Oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Um, well, it's, once we conquer sin, we need to conquer its punishment, death. And Christ has done both. So without the resurrection, Paul declares, you're still in your sin. You still have all your sins applied to you. And it is futile. It is just worthless. It is useless to believe in an unresurrected Jesus. And when you encounter those people that sit there and say, well, I just try to follow the principles of Christianity, but this, you know, this radical, I trust in Jesus thing just isn't for me. They are expressing a little faith in the teaching of Jesus, but it's worthless. To what end? To what end are you following the principles that Jesus taught in the Bible? To what end? Well, so we can all get along. To what end? When we consider that if this life is the end of man, which far too many have determined, how can there be anything other than sinfulness uninhibited if they really consider their place, if they genuinely do not believe that there is more to man than the flesh? In this life. So we find ourselves having nothing to believe in. We find ourselves being led about by liars, including Christ Himself. We find ourselves with an empty faith. We find ourselves still in our sin. And then Paul in verse 18 is going to press it even a little further. Uh, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So we have our brothers, brethren who lived for God and many of them gave their very lives to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And if I'm reading Paul correctly, I think there's probably one man that is in the forefront of his thinking in this respect 
And that is a man that he stood there and watched being stoned to death. His name was Stephen. And Paul was there as Saul lending his authority to this act and holding everyone's coat so they could do it proper as they stoned Stephen to death. And it was he who sat there and saw in Stephen's eyes and countenance as he looked up into heaven and saw that there was certainly more than this life to man. And Paul himself, as a a Pharisee, uh, believed in the resurrection of the dead. And he brings this to the Corinthians and says, Listen, are you telling me that they believed for nothing? They died for nothing? That all those who have gone before us, who followed after Christ, that they are now just ceasing to exist? That there's nothing more then we are in a pitiful position. For here we have, within our minds, and really within our being itself, a sense, a knowledge of, an understanding that there is more to man than this world. And yet as soon as we deny the resurrection, we deny that fact. Once you deny that fact, then no wonder we go out and live like animals. For we are nothing more than that. And so if Christ is just here to help you have a little bit of a better life here, Paul says, that's just pitiful. That's all you think Christ came to do. It's just to give you a few principles that if you apply them consistently in your life, uh, makes you a little less miserable, uh, makes it a little less, a, a little safer to live here, less dangerous. Um, because if everyone lived Christian principles, you know, of the golden rule and things like that, then uh, our whole lives would just be nicer here on earth and, and we could live and then die. So what? So what? That's all there is. Why? But we have a Savior who is risen. And Paul declares this in verse 20 as we press on into our future. So Christ is risen. So there is a resurrection. So what does it mean for us? What is our future then? Verse 20 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one his own order. Christ the first fruits afterward. Those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. We're going to stop right there. We'll probably press on here a little bit. We look at our future. We say, now we have a resurrected Savior. Pastor, we've all agreed with you all along, um, but it's still necessary for us to engage this because there is a real powerful movement, even within Christianity today, to question this. And those that you are engaging with the Gospel, this is fundamentally the big tripping point. 
And so it's necessary that we see the ramifications of soft, softening our position on the resurrection. We cannot. But now that we have a risen Lord, now that we recognize that, now we see our place in that plan of God, in that work of Jesus Christ, because of the power of that resurrection. And what Paul shares here is a, just a micro look, uh, just in a couple of verses, what he spent largely a whole chapter in the book of Romans developing this idea of Christ as the second Adam. That Christ is the one who will be at work on behalf of mankind to take what man has done through Adam in sin and introduce death into God's creation, that he is going to introduce himself as the second Adam to bring life, real life, into his creation. To put a death blow on death, so to speak. So we brought death by the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, and His resurrection, we have the end of death. And so we find our place as in birth in our forefather Adam that we all die. The Corinthians were seeing it around them. Some of them were not well and some had fallen asleep, even among the church. Um, Paul referenced that when he talked about their abuse of the communion table. Um, but we look at the, uh, the setting here and we see the necessity for resolution. That without Christ, there's nothing but death for man. But with Him, there's now going to be an end of death. While all die, all shall be made alive. Well, when? And that's what we all want to know, isn't it? When? And Paul's going to address that. Christ first. Afterward, those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end. We have a chronology set up here by Paul of what it will look like into the future. What should we anticipate? Well, we have Christ as the first fruits and then those that participate in the general resurrection, the first resurrection, resurrection to life. And then there is another resurrection, resurrection to judgment. And we have read that in Revelation there this morning. That is, Christ comes on the scene. He takes upon Himself as the second Adam, really almost another whole opportunity to enter into a new race of man. And yes, I do believe there are two races of man on the earth today. Those who are heading towards death and those that are heading towards life. And yes, I am trying to get people to change their race. It is the greatest endeavor of man. Stop going toward Adam's place of death and let's start going towards God's place of life through Jesus Christ. Stop being Adamites and let's be Christians. These are the two races of man. 
and they are the only two races of man. Those that go to life and those that are going to death. Period. And the resurrection is that means by which this new race of man was made possible. (laughs) I believe that's what the Bible refers to and it says that we are made new creatures. All things have passed away. All things have become new. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We think differently. We act differently because we have a sure hope. We have a different end. And our end is, is a, a new beginning. And this is the power of the resurrection. Christ can come and bring an end to death by His victory over it Himself. And so we look back at the historical event We see its power, we see its evidence, and we see its promise. And then we look at it today and we recognize there's more to me than just my flesh. There's more to man than just that. And so I look forward. And Paul says, as you look forward, consider you who are Christ. You are the next resurrection. That's been described in Scripture in many places in various ways. But always we participate in Christ's resurrection to life. We who believe. And brethren, that is something worth believing. It is something worth enduring toward. It is something worth suffering for. It is something even worth dying for. An eternal life. That by Christ's investment, we can have an eternal reward if we would but believe. And so Paul very quickly just weaves all this truth together and demonstrates the power of the resurrection on our behalf to care for our sins, to give us substance, substantive things to believe in, to give us a sure future, and in that future that we will have life, and life more abundantly than we could ask or think. So if you have an idea that you're just going up there to strum a harp and float around and be bored, um, you don't know God's Word well. All driven by the resurrection. And it is a matter of authority, ultimately. And I believe here is the turning point for those that want to move toward the Gospel. Paul wants to describe the authority that God, that by the power of the resurrection, Jesus Christ demonstrated his authority over death, something that none of us can do. 
I know we have doctors that think that they're saving lives, they're cheating death, things like that. And we have executioners and others that think that they are the agents of death, that they can decide who lives and who dies. But ultimately, what do we all really know? Everyone dies. And so death has authority over us because of Adam's sin. Christ comes and now by conquering death, he establishes his authority. And that authority Paul references here um, in verse uh, 24, uh, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts to an, an end to all rule and all authority and all power, and we often read that and we think, well, that's putting an end to uh, nations and kings and those kinds of authorities and those kinds of powers, the powers of men. But fundamentally, it is even that that ensnares mankind himself that God has exercised his authority and power over. He has power over death, real power to eliminate it. Over every authority that there is, God has established himself by the power of the resurrection above that authority. And so Paul in Philippians says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection is a reference to his authority. God has this authority over everything. I want him to have that authority over me. And one day, he will have authority over all, including you. Every knee will bow Every tongue will confess on that day that Jesus is Lord. The problem is, is for most of them, it will be too late. The time to do that is by our own will today to recognize Christ's authority. He is the one who rose from the dead and therefore He is the one that I must trust in. He is the one who innocently shed His blood for my Sin. He is the one I must trust in. I must surrender myself to His authority in my life. And therefore, you've heard me say many times, Jesus is not just our Savior, but our Lord. You cannot have one without the other. Period. Ever. The idea that you're going to accept Him as your Savior today and your Lord tomorrow is utter foolishness. If He is not Lord, then you have not surrendered your life to Him, then He is not your Savior. Period. He must be both. And so this idea of Christ establishing His authority by the resurrection power of God, I come to Him and say, well, I can't do that. I am the one deserving of death. You have conquered sin and death. I can't compare myself to you. And so willingly I drop on my knees and I say, Lord, save me. For I cannot do it for myself. It is surrender to the authority of Christ that fundamentally is the gospel. And the power of the resurrection draws us to it. Based upon that same power, one day every authority, including Satan, including the demonic, including Principles that we have a hard time putting our hands on, death and Hades itself will be put in its place. They will all be subject to the authority of this one Jesus. Why aren't we today? Why not do it today? Why not make yourself one of those 
who are subject to the authorities instead of arrogantly and boastfully prancing around thinking that somehow you can resolve things your way. Can't be done. You lack the power. You lack the authority. And the evidence of that is that everyone keeps dying. But we have historical proof of Christ's resurrection. He conquered that which was inconquerable by man. So one day, all men will answer to this one, Jesus. And one day, all their authority will be subject to him. And he will reign. Bible describes for a thousand years that Satan is in the bottomless pit chained. He will reign. And in the course of that, it says in verse 25, he must reign till. So there's a specific reign implied here that he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And we see that at the end of the thousand years, here comes the great white throne judgment. And at the end, death and Hades give up all that are in them. And we have the last resurrection, the resurrection and judgment. And then following that, it says death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire. They're gone. This is the second death. The eternal judgment. And Paul references that here in 1 Corinthians. That after his reign... The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And that we will enter into the eternal state that is described for us there in Revelation more fully in several chapters. But the way Paul wants to communicate it here is that Christ then, having enjoyed that thousand-year reign of His millennial kingdom, now presents it all to the Father. We have a new heaven and a new earth. We have this opportunity to enter into what we call heaven and into this glorious worship of our Lord and Savior, what is life forevermore? All this because of the power of His resurrection. Those who trust in that, their faith is not vain. It is not futile. It is not pitiable. It is powerful. 